The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 2011 Caltech Space Challenge. This is the seventh lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. And this morning, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Andrew Chang, who is the chief scientist at the Space Department at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. Dr. Andrew Chang. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, very excited to be talking to a very young and enthusiastic group of engineers and scientists who are interested in the same thing I am, which is NEOs. So um, I'll be talking uh, about a, a studies that we have done recently at the Applied Physics Lab, in fact, involving some of your other speakers, Paul Abel in particular, and Don Yeomans. And, um, I'm talking about robotic missions. Um, I understand your challenge is actually about the human missions, but you're interested in how to prepare for them. So that's what these robotic missions are about. It's preparations, these two on the right, specifically, is what I'll focus on. A uh, rendezvous mission to a near-Earth asteroid and a survey telescope. I think my title actually, my announced title was for the survey telescope, but I will talk about not only those two missions, but also some recent work we've been doing on um, mitigation and uh, astro planetary defense type mission. So I think you've heard about all of those. I'm just going to quickly go through uh, some of the reasons why we want to do these things. The Earth lives in a da dangerous neighborhood. I think you've heard this story already, I gather, because you've had a talk on planetary defense. And uh, you've heard that cosmic objects bombard the Earth continuously. You have something like 100 tons of metric tons of material, extraterrestrial material, falling into Earth's atmosphere every day. These are tiny objects, and they generally don't do you any harm. I mean, they're in your environment. But when they're large enough, they get through the atmosphere, they do damage on the ground. This is a famous, these are pictures of the famous Tunguska impact in uh, Siberia, 1904, how the ground looked in 1928 when I the first scientific expedition was mounted, and also 70 years later, another one. Some of the original trees are still down. Thousands of square miles of forest were destroyed like that. And then, of course, the mass, an even larger impact is capable of doing more damage. And a 10 kilometer, roughly, is the size that people talk about as large enough to cause a mass extinction. And the, and the latest mass extinction at the KT boundary is uh, traced to a famous crater called the Chicxulub Crater. This is a gravity map which occurred 65 million years ago in Yucatan. Um, sometimes, of course, you have in, in between. This is a f famous meteorite that fell in 1992 in New York. It uh, hit a car, punched a hole through it, and she's the owner, Michelle Knapp. And even she wasn't hurt. She uh, was able to sell the car for something like $100,000. <laughs> So anyways, the impact hazard, this is a chart which you probably have seen earlier in the week, which shows um, it's, it's a number of different axes which are proportional, all proportional to each other. That's why this chart works. So here it's the cumulative number of objects versus size. H is a size measure. Also here on this side is the interval between impacts of a given size. So the Tunguska impact, which I just talked about is a few tens of meters corresponds to a 10 or 20 or so impact 
energy in megatons now, so it's equivalent to a big thermonuclear bomb. And that kind of impact is a 30, 40, 50 meter kind of an object. And impact occurs every few hundred years. That's how you read this chart. So every few hundred years, an impact of that size, equivalent to a big thermonuclear explosion. The larger objects, fortunately, don't hit you as often. And that's because there's fewer of them. So you move down this curve. This is the uh, mass extinction size, where now you're talking 100 million megatons. You're talking 10 kilometer objects. That's the green chart here, I mean, the green axis. And also, these are every you know, 100 million years kind of number. The, just for reference, the total size of the nuclear weapons, all the nuclear weapons in the world, if they all were exploded at once, the uh, total energy is in this range. Right in, it's about 10 to the 4 in these units. So that's in between. That's a, a third global thermonuclear war somewhere in here, corresponding to about a one kilometer object, corresponding to an impact that we believe occurs every maybe a million years, a few hundred thousand years. So Congress actually asked NASA to find at least 90% of all the one kilometer near Earth objects. NASA has actually gone ahead and done that. Okay. And more recently, Congress directed NASA to go further. This is in 2005. Go further and actually go ahead and characterize, detect, catalog all NEOs, or not, at least 90% of them. All is very hard for reasons which we'll get into. But at least 90% of them with a diameter of 140 meters or greater by 2020. And um, the National Research Council, NRC, recently issued a study of which you saw the cover. My cover was actually stolen from the cover of this report. Uh, one of the key findings of this report is that NASA is not going to be able to do this. It is not going to happen. NASA, doesn't, NASA never got any money to do it. And so, anyway, it won't happen. I was on that study, and a number of the others, I think, of your speakers were also on that study. Okay, now they talked about, uh, as part of that study, um, what would you do if you discovered, if NASA discovered, if scientists discover an asteroid that is imminently going to hit the Earth? Well, what kinds of things could you do? Well, one of them is civil defense. So uh, you identify where is the asteroid going to hit, and you tell those people to evacuate. Okay. Or maybe you decide, well, there's no, no use, there's no time to do anything. We'll just have to prepare for the damage. So you hunker down, just take the hit. Um, all right, well, if you don't decide, if there's enough time, then there may be other things you can do. You can push on it slowly or pull it, or try to move it into a different trajectory that will not hit Earth. And there's a number of different techniques proposed to do that. Things like the gravity tractor, things like um, putting ion engines either on it or around it. So slow push or pull methods, the idea being to really try to not um, damage the object and also bearing in mind that we really know very little about the mechanical thermal properties of these objects. So you want to be gentle with it. If you really don't know what something's made out of or what it's like, don't push it too hard. Okay, then there's the other kinds where um, a kinetic impactor, you take a spacecraft, the spacecraft can um, hit the asteroid with a high relative velocity determined by orbit speeds, so 5, 10, kilo, 20 kilometer per second, carry a lot of momentum deflected that way. That's a kinetic impactor. 
Another option people have talked about is actually nuclear explosions. The idea not to blow the thing to bits, but to um, ablate material off. In other words, you have a, a, a nuclear explosion off the side of the object, deposit a lot of radiant energy, gamma rays, neutrons, depending on the kind of your explosion, but deposit a lot of radiant energy on the side of the asteroid near the bomb, and that would cause ablation of the material, blowing it off, and then the reaction pushes the object away. So that's the idea of a nuclear explosion. Um, clearly, the problem with both kinetic impactor and nuclear explosion is that you, to re be confident that you understand what's going to happen if you do this. So how much am I going to deflect the asteroid? What direction am I going to deflect the asteroid? You have to know something. You have to believe that you understand that interaction, and you have to believe that you know what kind of target you're dealing with. And in both cases, that's a, not a good assumption. So that's the other key point of the uh, report, the Academy report, is that all these technologies are very new and immature. We need to do more research. Okay. Um, of all the techniques here, only the kinetic impactor has actually been done. There's one mission, the Deep Impact Mission. It was a NASA uh, discovery mission that uh, flew a spacecraft into a comet in 2005 or four, I don't remember. Um, they flew into the comet Temple 1, but the comet's a much bigger target than most of the objects we're talking about here, um, and there was no measurable deflection. Okay, okay um, the NASA Advisory Council also, this just last year, recommended that NASA take on the following tasks, organize for effective action on planetary defense, that NASA should do the search, track, and warning, which NASA actually already is, to investigate, understand what the threat is, what kind of objects are we looking at, and to prepare to respond and to lead the US planetary defense efforts. Okay. Um, recently, also, the Office of Science and Technology Policy has decided, because again, a congressional direction, they develop policies for who's notifying federal agencies and the public in the event of an impending uh, asteroid impact, and who's in charge of dealing with it. Because up until that point, it wasn't clear which branch of government was responsible for dealing with anything. Um, in particular, there was a question of whether the US Defense Department was responsible or a civilian agency. So in any case, that's been settled now for the time being until, it's, well, it's been settled by the Office of Science and Technology Policy. John Holdren's the Presidential Science Advisory, so it's under his signature. And uh, there's two parts. Okay, see, notifying federal agencies is a responsibility of FEMA, of course. And, um, okay, but the letter also says that FEMA needs to be informed by NASA that there is a credible threat. So NASA is responsible still for identifying the asteroid that will hit you, finding it, and determining that actually it is a credible threat. And then once FEMA receives that notification, then FEMA is responsible for notifying federal agencies and the public. The other part is who's responsible for protecting the United States from a near-Earth object, and also implementing a deflection campaign should it be necessary. And um, given the status of our understanding of how to do these things, which is very immature, 
The letter declined to actually say exactly how you would do a deflection campaign. But it did put NASA in charge. So NASA's in charge of doing both the detection and the characterization, and also about studying and the options for how to mitigate and assessing the technologies that may be applicable. So NASA is in charge of doing all this stuff. And that is actually a big advance. Okay, now to move on, the European Space Agency, ESA, recently studied an asteroid deflection mission called Don Quixote. I'm sorry, I misspelled it. I should have. The, it's spelled with a J, the Spanish spelling. And that was a two spacecraft, which is an impactor and an orbiter. The orbiter is, um, arrives before the impact, and it studies the body. That's the orbiter. It studies the, the object's physical properties and also measures the effect of the impact. So measures the deflection of the object by you know, radio tracking uh, of the orbiter. And then the impactor goes and hits it. And they, discover, they, they chose these two particular targets. So um, this problem has been well studied. Unfortunately, it could not be afforded. They were originally charged to see if it could be done for under 100 million euros, and they're nowhere close. I mean, it should be obvious to you at this point, and they're nowhere close to that. So one of the things, the first thing I'm mentioning is that APL now, we are studying a mission which we think maybe can meet this target, and the general idea is that we're going to target a binary asteroid. So by targeting a binary asteroid, the deflection effect can be more easily measured. And we have a participation from a number of people at JPL, including Lance Benner. I don't know if he's on your program, but anyway, JPL. Okay, so moving on. 15 minutes have gone by. Is this just about right? Moving on now, uh, some years back, there was a uh, commission, Augustine Commission. It's one of the, uh, I hate to say this, but regularly convened committees to talk, lay out a new path for NASA. Um, uh, it's, it's bad to say this, but pretty much every time there's a new administration in the White House, there's going to be a new policy for NASA. So, uh, but anyhow, the last time it happened, there was a, uh, this commission laid out what's called a flexible path, and the flexible path talked about visiting not only the moon and the Earth, uh, Lagrange, this is the Earth-Sun Lagrange points, but also near-Earth objects and um, sending a human to Mars. So that's why it's a flexible path. The idea is just let's go you know, away from Earth. Let's, let's leave the cradle. Let's no longer be limited to orbiting near the Earth. But we're going to go out, and we're going to develop the technologies. We're going to learn how to do that and not necessarily commit to going to the moon or the asteroids or whatever. Now, um, what actually has happened since then is that the president in uh, last year, in April 15, 2010, made a speech that uh, announced his goal for NASA was that NASA would put humans on a near-Earth asteroid by 2025. So that is actually the version of the flexible path that NASA is currently embarked on, is near-Earth objects. Okay, I, I'm, I'm sure you know this. So, that's right, this is the uh, president's speech I just mentioned. It's official national policy, and okay. I think you've already heard a lot. This is actually a chart that Paul Abel put together. You've probably seen this. You may have seen a version of this chart already earlier in the week. 
And so, okay, as I said, the idea is to learn how to live off the land, so to speak, learn how to work, learn how to extend human presence beyond the moon. So, okay, there's also a science component, which you heard about, uh, learning about the origin and evolution of the solar system. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard the story also about the near-Earth objects, that they are fragments. Uh, the near-Earth objects are, are fragments of asteroids that actually originate in the main belt, and that in the main belt, the, the objects there are remnants from planetary formation. And also in the main belt, we believe now, more recently, some of them, the main belt also, in its outer reaches, includes an admixture of bodies that originally condensed um, in what we now call the outer solar system that uh, dynamically were mixed in uh, because of giant planet migration. But um, So anyway, the near-Earth population geologically is sort of a catch basin. It's like looking at the bottom of a cliff or looking um, in a riverbed that you're collecting little rocks from all the areas that the that are drained by the river, or that have fallen off the cliff. The near-Earth object population is sort of like that, in that it contains uh, objects that originated somewhere else, but not only in the main belt, but an admixture of uh, objects that formed in the outer solar system, including dead comets. There's a bunch of those, too. So um, that's a scientific reason to go out to, to NEOs to study um, very primitive objects that date to the very beginnings of the solar system, you don't necessarily have to go all the way out to the outer, outer solar system to visit these guys, because some of them come to you. Some of them come into the vicinity of the Earth, and they're found in the near-Earth object population. Now, the dirty secret of those of you who are the mission designers is those objects are still real hard to get to in terms of the delta V. They're still awful hard to get to. Nevertheless, it, it sounds good to say that, yeah, they're in the near-Earth population. That's a true statement. Okay, so you've got science and uh, human exploration. I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about, I've already talked about planetary defense. Okay. All right. So human operations, what are the kinds of things that you want to look at? This is a chart also from Paul Abel. Um, we want to know things like, how is the asteroid put together? Is it a monolith, a single consolidated body, or is it a bunch of fragments that are only very loosely bound together gravitationally? Um, we want to know what it's made out of. The subsurface properties we're talking about, the questions for the humans are, um, can I, if I try to anchor myself so I can install something or I can, I can um, deploy an instrument, will that anchor pull loose, or can I even... Uh, all right, so, so it's, it's a mechanical property, so what are called geotechnical properties. How much force do I need to apply to drill into there or to put an anchor in or to extract a sample? Okay, a lot of these same questions, of course, are very important in the planetary defense context. If, for instance, I'm doing a kinetic impactor and I want to know if I have a body of a certain size and velocity that hits the target, um, how... How much material am I going to eject? So what is the recoil of the um, ejecta? Because that will determine what my total momentum transfer is. I want to know, am I going to break the object into, into a bunch of pieces? And how big are those pieces? If you know, Are any of the pieces that I might make 
going to be also a threat. And what is the velocity distribution of those? It might be that some of the pieces that I deflect will be safe, but then a few of the other pieces might be, you know, in the worst case, actually deflected into an impact trajectory with Earth. Uh, those would be bad outcomes. So we need to try to understand these things. Um, science, of course, is interested in all these things as well, because we want to know how asteroids are put together, what they're made of, what their history might be, how they got the way they are. And there's a fourth, uh, <clears throat> a fourth bullet, which I won't talk about very much, but ultimately I'm convinced it's going to be the reason why people will really go out and explore asteroids and become routine. Uh, it's because someone's going to figure out how to make money someday. Uh, I'm serious. It's maybe one of you guys is going to figure out how to make a whole lot of money by going out there. When that happens, you don't have to worry. NASA won't have to do it anymore. Okay. But the key point is that you can see there's a lot of, similar, of overlap in the reasons of why you want to go to uh, near-Earth objects and that a bunch of these measurements, so basic things, very basic things, how big they are, for instance, you want to know for all these reasons how big they are, how fast are they rotating, what is their internal structure like, what is their density. We only know the density of a very small number of asteroids. I mean, the total number of asteroids known is, is more than half a million, but it's not even a handful of objects for which we know the density. Um, okay, where they are exactly, of course, if you're going to design a mission to go somewhere, we need to know the orbit pretty accurately. So anyway, so these are things we want to know for all these reasons. Okay, so now let me, okay, we're do, doing fine. Let me talk about one of the robotic precursor missions. Uh, this is the rendezvous, and it's based on the uh, near-Earth asteroid rendezvous mission, which was, in fact, the first mission to orbit an asteroid. This is back in 2000, and um, also to land on an asteroid. And I was a project scientist of that. So this is a study we did with Goddard and with Johnson last summer. Okay. So again, why do you send humans? I, 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 you, you've heard about this, so I will skip some of these things. But yes, it's the flexible path. It's wanting a destination that is a little bit you know, farther away than the moon, but not as far away as Mars. Near-Earth asteroids are perfect for that because the trip times um, are intermediate as well. So you can get trip times that a human can actually survive the round trip. Um, Mars is a little too far away right now. The time to get out there and come back is too long. Given the radiation environment, a human won't survive. This is as far as we, we, we can possibly... Uh, as far as anyone has figured out in terms of how to deal with radiation um, in humans, Mars is too far away is a problem. Okay, and then, of course, validating the technologies for future exploration of Mars, but also of, you know, deep space in general. That's what it's all about. Planetary defense, I've already mentioned. Yes, not as far away, easier to get to. Low gravity is helpful also. Right. And, of course, it might be a great and cool thing to do. All right. So why do you need uh, precursor missions? Um, it boils down to nervousness about mounting a mission that's going to cost potentially $100 billion uh, to an object about which you really don't know very much. And, and so it's a, matter of, it's a matter of avoiding risk. So I, I want to know, for instance, if I'm sending somebody, how much dust is there? What is the radiation environment like there? What kind of surface am I dealing with? Um, can the astronauts, if the astronauts pull on something, will it just tear loose or will it create a storm of dust that won't settle for maybe days? 
I mean, you need to know something about the object. And you also want to know, unless the astronauts are just going to go there and plant a flag, you want them to have a purpose that makes it um, easier to sell the mission. What are the astronauts doing? And one of the things they may want to do is make science measurements. Okay, I'd like to know what science measurements make sense. And in order to be able to do that, you have to know something about the object. What do I want to measure? I, I have an idea. The other thing that you can, might imagine that might be a good thing for astronauts to do is to test planetary defense techniques. I imagine that, okay, um, if I had to deflect this object, what might be the best way to do that? So do I have to be very gentle with it? Or is it actually pretty solidly put together and I can whack it pretty hard and I don't have to worry about it coming apart? Okay. So I mean, we, we don't know these things. Nobody's ever done an experiment like that. All right, so crew safety is one of the big issues. So you want to measure all these things for crew safety. How much radi what is the radiation environment? It's different near an asteroid or the moon than it is in deep space. And the reason is that um, the cosmic ray bombardment of the target near you creates um, secondary particles. So there's the cosmic rays go into the target, and then radiation comes out because of the, the um, nuclear reactions beneath the surface releasing particles that reemerge. The presence of the asteroid nearby changes the radiation environment, and it depends clearly on what that asteroid is, what's it, what it's made of, what nuclei are present in there, what nuclear reactions occur in there. That determines what, this, uh, what the effect of the asteroid is on the radiation environment. Now, that can be predicted. There's a whole lot of, you know, nuclear physics is a very well-developed field. You can make predictions, but the question really is, if you're going to send humans, you're going to spend a lot of money, don't you want measurements too? So that's why. Okay, you want to measure that. Uh, dust is a tremendous concern. Um, what activities raise dust? And once you raise dust off the surface, what does it do? How long does it stay in orbit or, say, levitated off the surface of the asteroid? And how much is it going to interfere with your operations? Um, fine dust also gets inside spacesuits. You know, asteroids, no, I'm sorry, the astronauts have to move in and out of not only their spaceships, but they have to get in and out of their spacesuits. And when they do that, how much effect is there going to be of the dust on the outside of their spacesuits getting into the inside of the environment? So there's radiation, uh, not radiation, there's biological aspects as well as physical aspects to this question. How much of a problem is it? And of course, all of these things deal with what the asteroid is made out of. I want to know about its physical characteristics, um, and obviously its geological characteristics. How rough is the surface? How fast? In addition to its basic uh, physical properties, like how large is it? How fast is it rotating? And all these things come into the question of, is a particular target suitable? Is it the place that I want to go to for a first human mission? All right. Then, as well, from a mission planning point of view, the more I know about the target, the more I can comfortably plan to do. Because I'm not going to spend, perhaps, you know, if I'm only going to spend a short time there, and the reason I'm going to spend a short time there is I know the clock is ticking in terms of my radiation environment. I need, if I need 180 days, well, whatever. If I know that my round-trip flight time is some number of days, and I know that the only amount of time, certain amount of time I can spend out there before I have to, I'm putting too much um, radiation 
uh, I'm encountering too much radiation risk to my astronauts, well then I know that I only have limited time at the asteroid. In that limited time, I have to plan to do certain things. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure to be able to cram as much activity as you can during the short time that you're at that asteroid. And the less time I have to spend figuring out things like what is the radiation, what is it made out of, the less time I have to do this, figure out the basic characteristics, the more I can concentrate on letting the astronauts do things that only they can do. All right. So you get a lot more bang for the buck in your human mission if you have a precursor mission. So that's what it's all about, making the robotic exploration to get ready to um, make it safer and also to make your human mission better. So that's the basic rationale for um, precursor missions. Make it safer, make the human mission safer, and make the human mission a better mission. Okay. So what we specifically did was, of course, we, this was a study that was done actually, um, we started this before a lot of the NASA-sponsored activities. And um, it was running sort of in parallel. And so we uh, said, okay, fine, it has to be cheap. It has to be quick. And uh, we chose targets that were, we said, fairly large, at least a few hundred meters in size. Um, and it turns out, this is an interesting statistic, um, if you choose a size criterion of something like 300, 400 meters, then about half of the total population of that size is already discovered. So we're saying, we were saying, okay, if you do this first, instead of doing an asteroid search first, you're assuming that I already know what the target is, I know what kind of asteroid I'm going to go to, and if you choose an object that big, so say at least a few hundred meters in size, or another way of saying it is something that's the size of Itokawa, which was the target of the Japanese Hayabusa mission, something about that big at least, I mean, you know, smaller than that, maybe you don't want to go to, um, then about half the asteroids of that size or larger have already been discovered. Okay, that's what we were saying. Turns out, and I'll get to this, or you may have heard this already, turns out asteroids this big, there are so few of them, it turns out there's none of them you can get to. The, our current ability to launch human missions, our launch capability is such, and also the amount of kit that the astronauts have to carry with them, the hundreds of tons of material that you have to launch to get an astronaut anywhere, um, is such that you can't actually get to any of these guys. I didn't know that when we started this. We know that now. Okay, so I think I've already talked about most of these things. Um, we're trying to characterize these. We want to practice the flight techniques. That's something I didn't say, that um, techniques for approaching a, 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 an asteroid, um, orbiting around it, landing on it, these are all flight techniques that are possibly relevant also to your human mission. And so those proximity operations, you want to measure what are called engineering boundary conditions. This is NASA lingo for understanding what are the relevant properties of the asteroid surface that control what astronauts can and cannot do, what resources are there, and what are your hazards. I think I've mentioned all of this. Okay, and you probably, I've already said this, this is sort of a timeline of a typical asteroid mission. You launch, you get out there, you do distant mapping, you get closer and closer, you're in orbit at some point or, or station keeping here. Um, and then you do some low-altitude flyovers to make sure that the place that you've picked out to land is safe, and then you go land or something like that. Okay. Okay, instruments is one of the things I was asked to talk about. I still have some time. Okay, so what are the kinds of things that um, you'd want to do? One of them, of course, is imaging, detailed imaging. Get up close. 
And why do you want to do this? Um, certainly, you want to find out a place that is safe to land. So that's, that's the operational constraint. So you have to look at the surface features and the topography. You want to look for evidence that there's loose material, because if it's too loose, maybe it's dangerous. I don't know. Um, from the science point of view, of course, we're interested in geology. We're interested in the uh, collisional history of the asteroid. We're interested in evidence that it may be a rubble pile or that it's not a rubble pile. Um, all these things, OK. We also want to understand if we pick a landing site, is that a typical area, or how is it related to the areas around it? Because well, I mean, you can argue for going to a very unusual place or for a uh, scientists will argue whether you go to an unusual place or a typical place. Um, the engineers usually win these arguments because they will insist on going to a safe place, and they usually win. So never mind. OK. Um, another measurement you'll clearly make is uh, gravity and shape. The shape determination is made by the imager. The gravity field measurement is made by ra radio tracking. Um, also, an instrument that's useful for this is the, a laser altimeter. That's, in other words, ranging to the surface. Um, the imager, as you know, measures the, the, the two coordinates that are perpendicular to the line of sight. So it measures plane of sky position. The third dimension is provided by a laser altimeter. Of course, you can get a third dimension as well from stereo imaging and knowing something about where you are. Okay, so there's ways of working around without a laser altimeter, but you do a better job with a laser altimeter. Um, okay. Another thing you do with the camera is look for things like if there's a debris disk anywhere, if there are dust clouds around the asteroid, um, if there are satellites. I should mention that we already know that at least 15% of all near-Earth objects are at least binary or ternary. In other words, they have satellites, natural satellites. That's very common in the near-Earth population. So it's quite possible that the fraction's actually higher than that, but that the satellites are so small you cannot see them from Earth. The uh, majority of the uh, <clears throat> binary asteroids that have been discovered so far are discovered by the uh, ground-based radar. One of them is a Goldstone at the JPL facility, and the other one's an Arecibo in uh, Puerto Rico. And those are typically only able to see fairly large secondary objects that are not that much smaller than the um, primary objects. So if you had a, you know, something the size of this room around a one-kilometer primary object, no one would see it. They wouldn't even know. Okay, so are there satellites is another question. Um, surface composition, of course, is something we're very interested in from uh, understanding the inter if, for example, we're going to try to do a, a nuclear explosion nearby, if we want to understand radiation environment and understanding what the uh, secondary and uh, radiation is from the uh, surface. Also for resources, if there's anything you want to go there to mine, for instance. Or, and for science, we want to understand how primitive is the object? Is it a differentiated body? You know, all these questions. And kind of instruments. There's a bunch of instruments you can imagine. Uh, the gamma ray and the neutron spectrometers um, is what we use. It was on NIR as well. The gamma ray spectrometer relies on cosmic rays. Um, <coughs> also... 
striking the surface and exciting the nuclear gamma ray radiation from the nuclei in the surface. And it's a spectrometer in different kinds. Um, there's also a neutron albedo that is stimulated by the uh, cosmic rays. And the neutrons provide further information. Um, but there's a special aspect of it, which is the neutrons are sensitive to the number of uh, hydrogens, protons, in the uh, target material. And therefore, the neutron uh, spectrometer is sensitive to water content. And that's particularly interesting. Turns out that um, many of the near-Earth objects, we believe, are water-rich. And water is certainly a resource that's interesting in space. So um, neutron spectrometer is interesting if you're landing to a kind of asteroid um, which may have water. Now, I, I, I don't know how much you've heard about this, but there's an entire alphabet soup of spectral types of asteroids, just like there is for stars. You know, there's a spectral type of, of some stars. Well, that actually is, we understand physically what that is. That's a sequence related to the surface temperature. For stars, that is. The spectral temp, the um, spectral types of asteroids are not as well understood. And there's a similar entire alphabet soup of uh, different kinds of asteroids. Anyway, um, some of them are believed to contain water, some are not, and a lot of them you're arguing about. And you can probably not even find two asteroid scientists who agree on even the number of spectral types. Paul Abel is one of them. He will have views. But if you ask someone else, they may have different views as to how many asteroid spectral types there are and what they all mean. OK, so that's something else you'd like to measure as a surface composition property. Um, OK, radiation and dust environments. I've probably said enough about it. That's actually, oh, NIR did not have such an instrument. This mission will need such an instrument. Actually, two different instruments. One is what's called a tissue equivalent radiation monitor, where you actually measure radiation damage in a uh, material which is a simulant for human flesh, because that's what you really want to know. And something to uh, measure the dust environment around the asteroid. Final thing that's really very important is uh, something that actually interacts with the surface. And um, I don't know, many of you may know about Gene Shoemaker, also associated with Caltech, who was one who originally um, determined that Meteor Crater, the famous Barringer Crater, was an impact crater. Anyway, Gene Shoemaker always used to say that what he wanted to do more than anything else was to go to a near-Earth asteroid with a rock hammer and bang on the surface. Because that's what any geologist wants to do. When they go out to some new place, they've got to take the rock hammer, chip some of it off, and look at it. All right. and, and that's what you really have to say. No one has ever done anything like that on a near-Earth asteroid. To so go there and physically interact with the surface, test the surface properties. So if you want to deploy an instrument, seismometer, thermal measurement, anything that actually has to go into the surface. No one's ever tried anything like that. OK, so that's what you have to do as well, to disturb the surface and interact with it. OK, so we carried these instruments. It's an instru a spacecraft going to look very much like near. It's, um, I don't want to. OK, we had identified a bunch of targets. Um, at the time, they looked like good targets. The um, six months later, and cold reality sets in, and turns out uh, you can't actually get to humans cannot get to any of these. Robotic mission, of course, we have a lot more launch capability. Robotic mission for very low cost can get to any of these. Unfortunately, humans cannot. That's too bad. 
So it's the same story. Um, even with a small launch vehicle like a Falcon 9, you can do these missions. If you're on an Atlas V 401, you can fly two of these probably, but there's no point. No point. I don't want to go through this or this. And this is, these are the things that I said. So this is one of the precursors. I have only 20 minutes left, I, and I haven't even talked about my main topic yet. So let's get going. <laughs> survey telescope. Why do we want to do this? OK, survey telescope. Again, this, I think, is a Paul Abel chart. Um, all three of these communities, back to the original thing, science community, planetary defense community, and human exploration community. Those are the three communities we're talking about. We all want a survey telescope. And why? Because we have not yet discovered all the targets that we want to discover. For the human missions, it's because we don't have a target that satisfies all the things we want, like reasonable size, that easy to get to. Okay? Because it turns out that the biggest rockets we can imagine making for the amount of money that NASA is probably not going to get, but maybe hopes to get, um, the biggest rocket we can imagine getting is not able to get to any of the guys that we know about. All right. So, as I said, this is why human exploration wants to do. It's to yeah, expand human activities outside of Earth and to expand scientific understanding. All right. All right, let's go on. I don't think I say. All right, there's actually only one object more than 30 meters in size that may permit an affordable mission during the time frame. This is already, you know, you notice that we're not starting 2025 and going to 2020. You know, we're already assuming that, well, NASA is never going to meet the 2025. We're going to give you five more years after that. Okay, and there's only one object of all the asteroids that we now know about that's bigger than 30 meters and that we think we can get to. And it actually, we're not, one of the things we don't actually know about this object is actually how big it is. We don't even know how big it is that accurately. It, as it says, it may be, this is Paul's chart, it may be above 30 meters in diameter. 30 meters is actually not that good. It's, that means it might be smaller than the rocket that you launched with. Well, that, that's bad. Somebody's going to point that out. If, we, if, if NASA decides to spend $100 billion to send humans for the first time to a near-Earth object, someone might get, you know, not everyone's going to support it, and people might criticize you on the ground. But, you know, this guy's so small. He'd fit inside the building that you erected, you know, the, the, the VAB. That you're, he'd fit inside the building that you would build your rocket in. So, if you want a bigger object, the problem is, first of all, we don't know that they exist. And the second is that it may require you to be, it would require you, the ones that we now know about, they require you to expose the crew to the radiation environment deep space for longer than we believe people can survive that. Or it may require that you have rockets that don't exist now. Or it may require that you re-enter Earth. The other way to do it, of course, is to come back screaming at high velocity to Earth and um, come back to Earth's atmosphere at such a high speed that you won't survive the re-entry. Okay, so that's the problem. And so one of the things you can do is, okay, let's, we know that we've only discovered a tiny fraction of the near-Earth object population. Let's go find, we believe there's got to be some that are better targets. Let's go find one. So that's what it's all about. Okay, so we got, and the other thing is, yes, there's a lot of activity going on to uh, Discover NEOs with ground-based surveys. NASA spends currently about $4 billion, not $4 million, sorry, $4 million a year to um, find asteroids. And um, 
Some people would say, well, let's wait for them to do that. Well, um, we, we can predict how long it would take to do that. And yes, in the next 10 or 20 years, probably you would discover more objects with ground-based surveys that would be suitable. But the trouble is, um, if you have a notion of meeting anything close to this time frame, you can't wait that long. That's the problem. So if we want to actually be able to mount a human expedition to the near-Earth object in a time frame that you and I will find relevant to our careers, then we need a space-based survey to find the target sooner. That's the problem. So I think I've made these points. I'm trying to rush a little bit because I want to leave time for questions. These are charts that um, you may have seen already, but basically what's considered affordable, it's two of these um, rockets that haven't been built yet that we hopefully we can afford. It's requiring a reentry speed that's not too high and requiring a trip that's not too long. Uh, reentry speed not too high is because of the technologies for the heat shield. This is because of radiation, and that is because of how much it costs to build a new rocket. Okay. Um, the problem with the uh, asteroids that we currently know, um, the point is that the asteroids that we currently know that are in orbits that are easy to get to, it's because they're Earth-like. And, and because they're Earth-like, that means that their period around the sun is close to a year. And because it's close to a year, that means that if you can imagine a racetrack, and you imagine cars going around it, there's a bunch of or, or runners running around it. If they're all running at about the same speed, they stay all bunched together. It takes a long time for them to spread out, and then the faster ones eventually lap the slower ones. That time, the lapping time, is called the synodic period. If you're all talking about asteroids that are close to a one-year orbit around the sun, then that synodic period can be very long. And what that means is that the asteroid is in the vicinity of Earth for a short time, and most of the time it's very far from Earth. And when it's very far from Earth, most of the time it's behind the sun. That means you cannot see it. You'll never discover it. So that's the problem. The time that it's close to the Earth, where you can see it from Earth and you likely discover it, and also close to Earth means that you can have a short flight time, you can get out there and come back quickly, that time is very short. And it's too short to mount a mission. That's the problem. We can't, if we discover these guys, you only have a few years to get a mission out to them in most cases, and that's just not enough. So you've got to discover them in a previous synodic period. That would be ideal. And then you have time to get a mission out there. Okay, that's what the Survey Telescope is all about. Um, I think I'm pretty, I'm, I'm going to have to go run through this very quickly now. So what are the reasons what you want to do to discover new asteroids? Of course, I love discovering new asteroids. We always want to do that. But um, we want to find things that are potentially good human targets. We also want to find things that might hit the Earth. They're the same, I should have mentioned, those are the same guys, because the objects that are always near 1AU are the ones that are the most dangerous. Okay? They potentially come close to Earth very often. Now, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, because um, when they do get close to Earth but they don't interact, there is a gravitational interaction. So Earth scatters the guy, and there's a tendency to scatter the guy out of the orbit. That, um, so it's a little more complicated. There are resonances and so on. So it's not true that they're necessarily the most dangerous guys. Nevertheless, they are dangerous guys. Um, and it's a very interesting dynamical question some of you may be involved in. Okay, and then what are the things that you want to know? Where they are, the orbital trajectory, 
basic physical properties like their mass, their size, and their rotation. Okay, um, if you're looking about, if you're talking about optical infrared telescope, we cannot find mass unless it's a binary system, and we know something about the actual size. Okay. Size, you have to guess based on spectral properties, or if you're making a thermal infrared measurements, you can get that direct you can make an, a, a more or less direct measurement of size. And of course, you want to know rotation because that determines what astronauts will or will be, not be able to do when they go try to land on it. Um, things like composition and internal structure are probably beyond the reach of any uh, astronomical remote sensing. You've got to go there. All right. Okay, I've already said these things, that um, the number of known targets is very small. Maybe it's probably zero, bigger than 30 meters. Um, we can't wait for the ground-based surveys. These guys are almost always in the daytime sky because they have Earth-like orbits. They're discovered when close to the Earth. There's not enough time to target emission. So this is why you want a space-based survey to discover them in advance of when they come close to Earth. And that's the same reason why you want to discover them for planetary defense. You don't want to discover the guy when he's you know, a week away from hitting you. You want to discover it years in advance. All right. Okay, so I've already talked about this. Um, okay, a lot of these surveys make use of what's called a sweet spot survey. In other words, there are areas to search. Okay, what's shown here, the green dots, you know, one dot for, this chart was made years ago, and you can see already what it looks like. One dot for each of the known uh, main belt asteroids, and then the red dots here are near-Earth objects, one dot for each of those, one particular time, just plot where they are. Um, sun is in the middle. Or orbit of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. And, um, okay, so sweet spots are looking <coughs> ahead of the Earth's orbit and behind it. Um, 40 to 70 degrees angular distance, this is the longitude, heliospheric um, or ecliptic longitude, and plus or minus 20 degrees from the ecliptic. That's called the sweet spot. As you can see, the near-Earth object, you, see, you catch a bunch of near-Earth, if you imagine the near-Earth objects occupy roughly a donut, this is but you're looking at the, uh, you're having a donut, like a bagel. If you look at your bagel, um, you catch a lot of them in this field of view and in that field of view. That's the idea of the sweet spot. There's two of them. And um, the point is that you, the, in the years before the sweet spot, in the years before they come close to Earth, they're either moving a little bit slower than the Earth, so you catch them this way, or they're moving a little faster than the Earth, you catch them that way. That's the idea of a sweet spot survey. All right, the alternative, hang on, the alternative is to um, move into an orbit that's actually inside of the Earth's orbit, and there's a convenient planet called Venus that um, you can do a gravity assist from, so it's convenient to talk about orbits that are close to the orbit of Venus, and then inside there, you are no longer tied to the one year around the sun, you go around the sun faster, and because of that, you're able to see these guys um, more effectively. All right, so... This is, all right, so again, you look from inside um, Earth's orbit, so the orbit, you're, you're orbiting the sun faster than the Earth, then you can detect, you can look also away from the sun and catch the target under, under optimal lighting conditions. All right, so we looked at both of these, and I think the bottom line is, I don't know how much I want to talk about. Bottom line, we looked at a bunch of different techniques, looking at the thermal IR, looking at the visible, looking at the near-infrared, um, we looked at all of them. They were talking about um, moderately large telescopes. In the optical, it's a one meter. In the, um, actually, 90 centimeter. 
In the infrared, we looked at a half meter. And the uh, key point is to have repeated views because you're looking for moving targets. Because you're looking for moving targets and you have to discriminate a small number, actually a very small number of NEOs from a huge number of background objects, main belt asteroids, stars, galaxies, things you're not interested in unless you're an astronomer. But um, things that we, so you have to re-image the same area of the sky regularly to be able to not only find the moving objects, but to determine good orbits, because that's what you have to do. You have to determine good orbits of these guys. And so the, what's called the cadence, the observing cadence of a telescope like this is going to be typically different from a space telescope designed for other purposes like astrophysics. A dark energy telescope is not going to do this unless they change their cadence. So this is an issue. Um, all right, so I think I made the main point that you have to, okay, so you have to go back and um, repeatedly visit at, the, at a reasonable time interval the same patch of sky to be able to get good orbits of the moving objects. Now, the other thing you want to do, of course, is characterize, and to characterize, you need to steer at a particular object, and that's, again, a different cadence. So what you're going to have to do is do one or the other and, and presumably switch between the two. So if you're... If, for instance, you've, you've searched for a year or two years, you've discovered, or NASA has decided, okay, I'm really interested in this particular guy, go and tell me more about it, then you say, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go point at that guy for a week or a month or a day or something, and then I'll measure things like its colors, its rotations, and so on. But you have to interrupt your search to do that. Okay, I've done a bunch of simulations. You've seen this chart, assumed uh, low and high populations. Um, this is something you may have seen, that small NEOs are fast rotators. I think Paul may have mentioned, I don't know if he mentioned this, but um, under about somewhere between 140 to 200 meters, the, you can see that the rotation periods are much shorter. So they're fast rotators. These guys are fast rotators. The fastest um, rotation periods are in the range of minutes, and that becomes an operational issue. The objects that are larger than about Itokawa here, as far as we know, all of them are slower than two-hour rotators. Why that is so is a mystery. Well, okay, there's one exception, sorry. There's that guy. One exception. That's still true. There's only one exception. Um, it's a mystery why that's so. We have no idea. But that's observationally the fact. Okay. Um, we predict the number of objects. You're going to discover, I think, lots of objects. We, we, we predicted with the kind of things we're talking about um, discovering several tens of objects suitable for human exploration. Also, the Georgie Brown limit. Remember, NASA was tasked to discover 90% of objects larger than 140 meter. This kind of a survey, you're looking at a reasonable progress toward that in not too many years. Okay. Um, I just skip that, skip that. What the telescope looks like, it's, you don't care probably. But it's a low-cost mission, so this is less than the cost of a discovery mission. Again, it's a small launch vehicle, something that can be done quicker. Okay, and I'm done. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.